Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Yo, yo, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Stay Grounded. Hope you are all having a great day so far and trying to find some space in your day. If you're listening to this podcast, then that means you are creating space in your day to at least connect back with what matters, live in the moment, and feel into this new normal as well as you can. And to help us do that today is my good friend, Mr. John Crop. So John is a Harvard-educated lawyer and a mindfulness expert who's been meditating for over 13 years. Through his company, Mindfulness for Lawyers, John has taught mindfulness at Harvard, Yale, the Pentagon, the world's top law firms, Fortune 100 companies, and other organizations. But John didn't start his path into meditation and mindfulness for any noble reasons. He really just started to increase his grades and get a cognitive edge at school. But when he went on a trip to Argentina, he ended up learning from one of the Dalai Lama's Latin American translators, and he discovered the spiritual benefits of meditation as well. So John has studied with traditional Buddhist teachers, and his teaching style resonates with people who aren't drawn to chanting crystals and New Age overtones. Uh, And that's partially why I love John so much. He's a practical, modern-day meditator. And, you know, I've been meditating for for years now, on and off, I'll be honest. It hasn't been something that I've been able to stick to consistently, but it's shown up in different ways, in different forms, and in different avenues of my life. doesn't matter if it's taking a breath before I begin something stressful or starting my day with meditation or simply being aware of my thoughts and my and my emotions. You know, meditation is nothing but the act of becoming conscious. And And to me, you know, our conscious brain accounts for something like 3% of our awareness. Everything else happens in our subconscious. But in that subconscious space is really where the magic happens. And when we can learn to sit with our mental and emotional and, and physical environments, when we can learn to observe, when we can learn to become an observer of our life's experience, that changes everything. So I'm really excited about today's episode. You know, John breaks down meditation to, you know, what it is and how you can begin to adopt it into your life. You know, how to feel grounded enough to surrender. You know, what is it supposed to look like and feel like? How do you empower someone who can't meditate? All of these things. I've gotten a lot of messages from all of you around meditation and mindfulness. And I've heard a lot of feedback from the community around meditation being something that's difficult to pick up. Whether it's you feeling like you're doing it wrong or whether it's, you know, you're just not being used to the idea of sitting for that long or even a confusion around how you're supposed to feel afterwards. And John covers all of that in this episode. So if you've had trouble meditating or if you really feel like meditation and mindfulness can be beneficial for you in this period of sort of up and down chaotic stress, then I encourage you to sit here with a cup of coffee or wherever you are, pull out a journal and just take notes because John took me to school and I can't wait for you guys to experience 
the incredibleness that is Mr. John Crop. So enjoy him. Uh, we've got all of his links available in the show notes. He's also pretty active on social media, so you can follow him there. But if you haven't already come join the Stay Grounded community, go to rajana.com forward slash stay grounded to get all sorts of additional guides, resources, and content to help you further your relationship with yourself, to help you stay grounded in the moments that matter and increase your connection to something bigger, something greater, something full that has always existed within you. So I love you guys. Thank you for being here. But without further ado, here is my main man, Mr. John Crow. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome to another episode of Stay Grounded. Hope you're all having a great uh, day so far. What up, John? How you doing, man? Hey, man. How you doing? Nice to see you. It's so good to see you, brother. And I love the suit. That's the uniform. It's That's the how uniform, I teach. man. And it's it's spiffy. It's It makes you look good. And I think you're the, probably the first person who's ever worn a suit on the show. Well, you know what, man? It's it's about showing a little respect to you, you know, a man de- deserving of respect. And it's also just like, honestly, like I started wearing the suit because I teach usually in corporate settings at law firms and so forth. So for them to take me seriously, they need to see that I'm one of them, you know, and so on and so forth. You know, I am a lawyer. This is how I get down. And so I wore the suit for that reason. And then after a while, it did really start to feel like, you know, I said it sort of jokingly, but it did start to feel like the uniform. And it also felt like a way of kind of showing respect to the teachings too that I'm passing on. You know, in the old days when Buddhist teachers would teach, they would wear like a shawl to show that like it's teaching time. I'm now like speaking with the authority of a of a teacher, right? I'm not just chilling, talking to you as your bud. I'm in teacher mode. And I kind of feel like the suit's kind of like the same thing, like shows a little respect to the teachings and it like helps me like get in my mode of like, let's respect what we're, what we're doing here. Let's respect what we're talking about. And let's like bring dignity, decorum, something like that. That's beautiful, man. Like I love the ritual behind sort of the act of becoming a teacher, right. Or even approaching teachings in that way. Right. Like there's a, there's a beautiful, cause when you respect something, it's almost like you, you revere it in a way and, and you allow it to be something that benefits or serves you in the way you expect it to. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of ritual, I think is really powerful, even in whether it's in a religious context or a secular context. I mean, ritual is just something designed to sort of psychologically evoke awe or a sense of significance in a person. Right. So I think there's power to be harnessed there two things. One, it's easy for it to just turn into bullshit, right? Oh, I just put on the suit and it's bullshit. So you got to like sort of do the work to like take it seriously. And then the other thing is we could talk about this down the line if you like, but like even the idea of being a teacher, very fraught with its own sort of dangers, but maybe I'm getting it. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here. No, 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 man. Like I think you're priming the perfect conversation right now, because I think that the idea, one I've always believed in ritual. I mean, human beings are the only creatures that I can, that we know of that, can consciously create meaning in something meaningless. Like we can take this glass of water and make it mean something by praying to it, by sitting with it, by appreciating it, by giving a prayer or a, or a, or a moment of stillness to transform this into something special. Yeah. And I think that's our superpower in some ways. And it's also our detriment, right? Like as egocentric beings, we also tend to create 
stories around things that then cause pain and suffering on a grand scale. So it's, it's almost important to recognize, and Ian, I love that we're starting here because I love bringing awareness to the power of our awareness, right? Because that's a lot of what you teach in some ways. Like, can you tell me the story of how you came from law, which is seemingly the other end of the mindfulness spectrum, right? The work is very, it's, it's just, it just seems like chaotic in ways to this other end. Like what brought you there and how did you transition to this, to this place of, of personal power? So I got into the mindfulness and meditation stuff in law school, actually. So I went through my first year of law school and I kind of had a hard time. It was a pretty competitive place. Everyone around me seemed super smart, super organized, super focused. Uh, And I have ADHD. And so, you know, like I'm not a stupid person, but I did feel like I was so much less organized, so much less focused than the people around me. And I felt like I was kind of struggling And I really got into meditation for almost sort of mercenary reasons of, you know, I could focus a little better. I could concentrate. It's supposed to be good for your, you know, cognitive abilities. Maybe it'll help me do better in school. It'll help me stay more on top of things. So it was for very, what you might call worldly uh, motivations. Right. There was also like some vague spiritual curiosity there. The, The spiritual curiosity really of like a a privileged person who like doesn't really have any actual problems. So like, Oh, you know, I had the space to be like, well, isn't there something more to this? That's sort of like spiritual ennui. But mostly it was like, I don't know, I got to get my grades up. I feel like I'm getting eaten alive here. And so I got into it for those reasons. And, you know, I was very lucky. So if you want to hear the story, the summer after my first year of law school, I went to Buenos Aires, Argentina, uh, to do some legal work down there for the summer. And I brought this book down called Buddhism for Beginners that I had bought earlier that year and never read. Uh, And it just like sort of was on my shelf waiting to be read. And I brought it down in the probably vain hope that I would read it while I was down there, which I didn't, at least at first. And then my landlady saw that book, the landlady, you know, of the apartment that I was renting. And she said, oh, are you Buddhist? Do you meditate? And I said, well, no, but I'm super interested. And she said, great, come with me tonight. And it turned out that she was part of this meditation group that met in Buenos Aires once a week. And so she brought me down there that night and I went to my first meditation lesson and the guy teaching it, the guy who ran this group was this incredible, incredible guy, Argentinian guy. But when he was 25, he went to, I think, India and Nepal and he didn't leave until he was 45. He you know, spoke fluent Tibetan. He was this incredible teacher. He's actually the Dalai Lama's Latin American translator. Wow. Uh, so I just really lucked out. I met this guy. I was introduced to him at the end of the lesson. He was, he was very kind. He invited me out to dinner. So I went to dinner with him and his family. And he became my first teacher. And I studied with him all that summer, which was just incredible good fortune. Then I went back to law school. I went back to the US. And he had told me that if I had the chance to study with one of his teachers, who was a Tibetan, I should take that chance because it might be a good fit. And it turned out that that teacher was doing a silent, a week long silent meditation retreat that coincided perfectly with my spring break. So Uh all of my friends went to Cancun uh, and I went to England to do this meditation retreat. And once I did that, it was like, oh, this is clearly the thing for me, right? This is it. And it, it, it so clearly went beyond the get my grades up pragmatic motivation that I originally had. So I just sort of fell all the way in. And after that, I was just in, you know? And so 
throughout law school. And then after I graduated and went into the, the practice of law, I kept on you know, meditating, cultivating my mindfulness practice. I went on a series of increasingly long, silent meditation retreats. And then more recently, at the encouragement of a lawyer friend, I started to teach. You know, over the last five years, I started to share a little bit of what I'd learned in the legal profession mainly. Uh, so with lawyers and, and other legal professionals. Dude, what is so like what is so transformative about the long silent retreats? I'm curious because it sounds like it has a really profound sort of tipping point for you and even redefining what mindfulness meant, right? At, at its core for you. Yeah, I mean, it's the lab, right? It's where you can like set up the conditions to be so conducive to this sort of contemplative practice that you can go much deeper and experience states, insights uh, that would be hard to experience amid the sort of turbulence of daily life, right? It's just you set up these perfect lab conditions and then you go for it. You don't do anything else, right? So the external conditions for practice are optimal and then you take full advantage of it by practicing like 12 hours a day, you know, depending on the sort of retreat you go to. So there are just things you can do there that you can't really do elsewhere. So you're going to discover what the potential of contemplative practice and what the potential of the mind sort of really is. What is the potential of mind and what is the potential of that contemplative practice? Well, let me step back a little bit because I haven't experienced the full potential of the mind or the full potential of contemplative practice. I'm just a student, right? And even as a teacher, like I said, I'm a little weird with the term teacher I try and think of myself more as a more experienced student sharing stuff with less experienced students. But what is the potential of this contemplative practice? What is the potential of this mind? Well, there's a potential for incredible stillness and clarity where the sort of narrative fog that we live in day to day, the continuous never ending churning of mental story, there's so much interesting stuff underneath all that, that we almost never get to see. I think Alan Watts said something like muddy water is best cleared by leaving it alone, right? And when you just leave your mind alone for extended periods of time, that stuff starts to clear and you start to see some stuff, these profound depths, these profound stillnesses and a sort of profound emptiness, potentiality, vastness, um, all of that stuff starts to come through. It's dope. It's cool to see. And then to get a little Buddhist or at least Buddhist influence for a second, you know, I'm a, I'm more of a secular person, but I'm, I, I consider myself sort of Buddhist in that, you know, I consider myself non-religious, but very enamored of the Buddhist philosophy, worldview and practice, yeah. the potential for insights into the way that the mind really works, because so much of our misery, so much of our suffering comes from the fact that we are deluded about things. We're deluded about the nature of our minds. We're deluded about the nature of our experience. We're misperceiving things. And when you go into this sort of lab and you learn to make your mind very stable, very clear, strong, and cultivate the ability to investigate the mind itself and your own mental phenomena, you start to notice some interesting things about them that change your worldview in radical ways that will make you, I think this is the key part because who cares if your worldview changes, what's the consequence? And to me, yeah. the consequence is twofold. You become a happier person who suffers less 
And if you're doing it right, you become a kinder person who helps other people suffer less. And I think those two things are equally important. So a radical insight that leads to a radical happiness and hopefully a radical kindness, generosity, availability to others. That's so powerful, man. Like, and I love that thing about the personal development world. It's constantly adding layers on top. It's like, go read this book, go to this conference, do this thing, try this thing. Boom, boom, boom. It's layers, 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 layers. It's almost like the culture is to add more. What I love about this is it's actually stay still. Don't do anything. Sit with what's already there because when the dust settles, you're almost removing layers that don't serve so that you can get to the meat and potatoes of what it means to be a human being. Yes, absolutely. So one of my teachers, uh, a Tibetan Lama named Sokni Rinpoche, wrote a book called Fearless Simplicity. And that really resonated with me, this idea of being sort of radically, fearlessly simple. And that doesn't mean that you can't function or even thrive in a complex world. You know, so Rinpoche would say, outwardly be as complicated as you need to be, but inwardly be simple. And I think there's a lot to that. I love the outward complication because I, I think creations are complicated in some ways, right? Like, like I love that visual of like be inwardly simple, but outwardly complicated because I think that's the perfect manifestation of chaos. That's right. Yeah. No one has to know that you're incredibly simple on the inside, right? You can like sort of keep that to yourself. On the outside, you're doing everything you need to do, right? You're doing your job, you're being with your family, you're engaging with your friends, you're laughing, you're joking, you're living a full life, Right. But inside, simple, you know, and I don't think the two have to conflict at all. Actually, I think it's the opposite. I think the two really serve each other, or at least at least it goes one way. That inner simplicity, I think, will aid you in handling the complexities of life without further complicating them, right? Without complicating them unnecessarily, right? You don't need to bring further complexity to an already complex system. Right. You show up inside of the system with as little resistance as possible because you're not stirring the pot you're not creating a storm inside of you and then creating a storm outside of you and trying to match the carpets with the drapes no you're you're recognizing that there's this vast chaos in nature right there's this vast nature of just everything is i mean if there's anything right now right especially with the climate we're in mm. like it's pretty crazy when you see how much it's like we're we're rudely being reminded by mother nature of its vast power to just be chaotic and not just chaotic, but unpredictable, yeah. unreliable, ever changing. Right. So to me, like that really reminds me of something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. People are talking a lot about like, well, the silver linings of the COVID-19 crisis, right. And all the ways that it can help bring us some insight and so forth. And I want to preface, I want to sort of preface by saying I'm like sympathetic to that, to those sorts of uh, conversations. And I think you've been having some of those conversations, Raj. Yep. But I do also feel very strongly that this is a massive tragedy and that people are dying. People are afraid that they're not going to be able to feed their families or they can't feed their families. Yep. It's awful, awful, awful. And anyone who says, well, maybe this is a good thing. I have little resonance with that position. But that doesn't mean that there aren't useful things about it, right? I think it is overall an awful thing and it breaks my heart and it scares the shit out of me. That's the main, my main emotional response to it. But 
that doesn't mean it can't teach us things too. One thing that it's really taught me is, you know, a core principle of Buddhist philosophy is the idea of impermanence, this idea of a sort of radical impermanence. So not even just the idea that, like, we all know in this current scientific paradigm that we're all living in, that of course, everything is impermanent, right? Everything is eroding, entropy is increasing, even mountains will eventually sort of wear down to nothing, right? We all know that intellectually. But two things. One, we may know it, but we don't act like it, right? Mm -hmm. We don't live as if. When someone dies, when we lose a job, when a prized possession breaks, we're still somehow surprised, right? And it still somehow cuts us to the core because we pay lip service to the idea of impermanence, but we haven't really owned it all the way down. We don't really believe it. We don't really believe we're going to get old. We don't really believe we're going to get sick. We don't really believe that we're going to die. That shit happens to, to other people, you know? And I catch myself doing it all the time. I see the wrinkles on my face and I'm like, damn, me too. This is really happening. And it's not just that we don't act as if we don't live as if, but the impermanence goes further and it's more radical than we think. Things are changing every moment, right? There is no such thing as permanence. There is no such thing as things in a sense. One of my teachers used to say, a teacher who has since been sort of disgraced in a sex scandal. So it's kind of complicated uh, <laughs> how much I take from that. But, uh, you know, we don't really hang out anymore. But he did. But I can't like stop occasionally saying sensible things that he said to me, you know. So he would say, it's not just that things don't last. It's that there are no things, right? Everything is in flux. Everything is in changing. There are, everything is in change. There are no nouns. There are only verbs. And what that means is that there is really no ground to stand on. Everything is fundamentally unreliable. Anything could change at any time, right? And I knew that intellectually, but I didn't really start to feel it in my gut until this crisis hit. Now yeah. I'm starting to feel it. And I think this is teaching a lot of us, a lot of us privileged people, you know, because I am privileged in many ways. And it's teaching a lot of us privileged people the true meaning of impermanence the fundamental unreliability of all phenomena that ultimately there is no ground to stand on. There is no safe territory. There's nowhere you can stand that is safe and secure. And that sounds terrifying and it is, but the only sane response is to let go and yes. to just embrace and accept the fact that there is no ground on which to stand and there is peace there and there is workability there. Right. And that is one of the core Buddhist insights, right? Is stop fighting the radical impermanence of all things. Just stop fighting. Go with it. Understand that there's no other way. Everything is unreliable. There's no ground on which to stand. Just let go. And you can feel that unclenching. You know, and you'll realize that you've been clenching like that your entire life, you know? Well, it's almost like you want to, well, it's, if we redefine ground, right? Because I think like Needing your feet, the things you see, the, the, the reality you experience to be on solid footing is, I think, a fallacy. Like, that's not real, and it can't be for long periods of time. Yeah. But when you can start to find strength and groundedness, and one thing that's taught, like, so one thing this crisis is showing me is the perspective with which how many things I looked for outside of me to create strength and, and a sense of wholeness within myself, yeah. whether it was money in the bank prestige, 
could have been influence. It could have been anything outside of me that I'd go to in order to make me feel more strong, powerful, and in control. But the only thing that I really ever controlled was my sense of self. It was, like you said, I love the, the simpler it is on the inside. And the chaos outside doesn't even matter because you just become one with it. Mm. You surrender to the chaos outside of you. You let go of everything and you just arrive into each present moment with the understanding that this present moment may be this way for a minute. It could be this way for a year. It could never be, it could be this way never. But at the end of the day, your sense of peace, control, and strength is not drawn from an act of holding on to anything outside of us. It's found in the act of arriving into each moment with presence. Absolutely. Yeah. And there is there's something really encouraging and reassuring about that, right? Because when you talk about impermanence in the way that I've been yeah. talking about it, it's frightening it's dislocating right it's scary sounding and a lot of like these buddhist principles sound like bad news when you first hear about them before you go deeper but there's always incredible good news waiting for you there right and you i think just sort of beautifully flesh that out when you let go of this need for stable ground to stand on when you stop looking 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 for some sort of life raft to hold on to, to cling to, and you realize you don't need it. You can just fall back and, and float or fall and it's okay. That is an unshakable sense of peace and contentment and security. How do you get there? I mean, to me, that feels like confidence. Is it as simple as building confidence? Is it like, like I guess, peace, confidence, sense of self, self-love, like what is the foundation of that trust and surrender? Well, I think it depends on what level you're talking about, you know, because I think that on the more on the level of our thoughts and our sort of the building blocks of our personality and so forth. I think, yeah, it's great to develop confidence. It's great to cultivate gratitude. You know, you might look into the various methods of positive psychology, you know, which I'm somewhat familiar with. Then there are other aspects of personal development that I'm less familiar with that you might be familiar with. So all of that stuff is great. Build strong relationships, build confidence, self-esteem. You want your sense of self to be a healthy sense of self. But then at another level, you have to destroy that sense of self, right? And so it's like, or that's not true. I'm overstating for effect. You want to have your sense of self be a... <laughs> Sorry, dog. Um, <laughs> you, you want to have your sense of self be a healthy one. Yeah. And then you also want to be able to see the illusoriness of that sense of self. You want to be able to know it for the illusion that it is. And if you just do the latter, like if you skip all of the personal work of developing that healthy, strong, loving, grateful, kind sense of self, that, that, that persona, that personality, if you skip all that work and you just do sort of hardcore spiritual work of seeing through the illusoriness of permanence, seeing through the illusoriness of self, I think that you end up sort of a psychopath or you can, yeah. you, know, you end up this person who's done what's called spiritual bypassing, right? Where you use spirituality to paper over and skip the important work of integrating yourself as a human being. Yeah, I just want to say something to that real quick. Cause I was having a conversation with a friend of mine recently and we talked about this very thing. I loved a quote he dropped, which was be friend before you transcend, which was, it's, I think it's very much like an echo to what you're saying right now, because if you just try transcending the problem, and going to these spiritual outlets to get somewhere without actually 
befriending or taking the ego or your sense of self along for the journey and its humanity, you end up actually create, you never actually reach transcendence. Like you can't because you've, you've, you've left the fundamental piece of that compassion, the fundamental piece of that love. Mm. There's a disconnect, right? Because you are the temple at the end of the day. And if you leave this behind to go and search for some level of clarity or peace, you're never going to find it because the foundation hasn't been groomed, if you say, or if you will. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, but like, even if you arguably could do that, concern yourself only with matters spiritual, you know, and, and sort of trans mundane, even if you could do that, the society that we're living in isn't set up to accommodate that. Maybe if you lived in Tibet a couple of hundred years ago, then you could go live in a cave for the next 30 years. People did. They would achieve some measure of realization and then they would humbly request permission from their teacher to go live in a cave for the rest of their life meditating. Sometimes the teacher would say yes. Sometimes the teacher would say, no, you got to go teach. Sorry, you got to go back into the, into the world and teach people. But so like the world that we're in is not Tibet in the 1700s or yeah. whatever. We got to be here doing our thing, right? We're colliding with people all the time. And if we don't work on our mundane selves, then those collisions are going to be unpleasant for those people and probably unpleasant for us. And we have a responsibility not to be that asshole, I think. So, you know, Ken Wilber talks about this a little bit without endorsing every single idea that Ken Wilber's ever had. He does talk a lot about this idea of waking up versus growing up, you know, waking up, meaning sort of spiritual awakening and spiritual insight and growing up, meaning you know, doing the hard work of getting over your neuroses and your insecurities and learning how to be with people. Exactly. Waking up versus growing up. And I think it's important to do both. And I don't think that one is necessarily a shortcut to the other. Yeah. Brilliantly said, dude. I love the, that's such an important distinction, waking up versus growing up, because I think it brings, and I love the idea of growing up because it has an element of effort to it. Right. Like waking up, it's like it can like happen in a moment. Like you can have a moment that's aha. And all of a sudden, like, and I've had moments of just like, holy crap, like a light bulb just struck. And all of a sudden I can see something with clarity. Yeah. Right. But then growing up though, is the practice. It's the practice of being a human being. It's the, it's the practice of being grateful when you can't find the strength to be grateful. It's the practice of being loving and kind and compassionate with yourself when you've been taught by everyone in society that everything you did is not okay or not enough or not ever going to amount to something. It's meeting yeah. yourself with that humanity, which takes effort and it's hard. And, and the good news is, I'm sorry, were you going to say something more? I apologize. No, man, no, I was, uh, I'm going to let you riff. Go. It's hard to stop me once I start. Sorry. Bro, just go, um, go, go. The great thing is that there's there are practices for both of those dimensions. There are practices, right? Not just platitudes. You know, I feel like sometimes it's easy to content yourselves with platitudes. You read an inspiring quote on Instagram, like, oh, you know, that's lit, whatever. Like, I agree with that, uh, with that cool, like spiritual turn of phrase or whatever. But there are practices. There are real practices that you can do day after day after day that will transform you, that will transform you in terms of growing up, right? You can, you can do practices of cultivating gratitude. You can go to therapy, if you're lucky, you know, you have the, the resources to do that. You can read about various dimensions of personal development, cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, positive psychology. You can cultivate all these things. There are practices, 
it's been laid out. We don't have to figure it out ourselves. Wise people have already started laying this groundwork. We can stand on their shoulders. And then in terms of waking up, there are practices. Get your ass on the cushion and meditate, right? Practice mindfulness in your daily life. Explore different contemplative paths. Figure out one that resonates with you. Really drill down on it and start to walk that path. Like there are practices, you know, and we're so lucky. We're so lucky that we live in an era where all these practices are being openly discussed, made available online. You know, it used to be, how would you hear about this stuff? You had to live in the right place where there was a teacher nearby. And then you had to fortuitously encounter that teacher. Now you just Google it. It's incredible. You know, we're so blessed to have access to this massive global compendium of practices, you know? You know, it's most powerful about that idea. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, the last big global pandemic was, what, 1918 or 1912? Somewhere around then. I think think, 1918 was the Spanish flu, I think. Spanish flu, right? You know, at that time, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have these, like, these, just the awareness of, of information, of knowledge of anything in that, in that state, right? Like, there was just nothing to cling on to. Nothing spiritual to cling on to. There's nothing, there's nothing to hold on. There's no stories of possibility. There was no perspectives of, of, of possibility that was available beyond what you knew in your immediate circle. Mm. We're living in a time right now where I can learn from somebody like yourself who had the privilege of learning from somebody who had the privilege of learning from the Dalai Lama yeah. through a, a disconnected chain of technology of the internet of access to knowledge and books and resources and our own awareness of of what's truly possible in the world has never been at a higher level yeah right like i mean the the awareness of all these tools like somebody who has no money can go to youtube and find a video that explains what meditation is incredible yeah It's a fascinating time to be alive and it's a fascinating time to be met with crisis of this nature. Yes. And as a meditation guy, it has been so thrilling to watch meditation go from an obscure fringe practice that I got funny looks for being into to not that I'm bitter or anything to this, (laughs) This incredible global phenomenon, you know, now I teach a room full of lawyers. I'll say, hey, who here's meditated before? Almost all the hands go up. When I started doing this a few years ago, that was not the case. I used to have to really talk my way into those law offices. Now I'm like, okay, so what you need to understand about mindfulness is mindfulness is, and they're like, we know, we know, it's fine. And that's been incredible to see all the resources. You know, there's good and bad to it, and there are better and worse resources, but it's just been such an incredible sea change. You know, these, these precious, precious teachings, these sort of wisdom teachings that can transform you, that offer you this radical happiness, this radical kindness. You can just like get it on your phone now. It's wild. It's amazing. John, what made you believe in it so bad that you were willing to sell it the way you did to people who maybe have never heard of it before? Oh, like what gave me the conviction to sort of convince those people? I just tasted it. You know, I just tasted the benefits. There's nothing like, um, I love butchering quotes. And so there's another quote that's like, you know, you can't describe the taste of sugar or the taste of molasses, but once you've tasted it, you know exactly what it tastes like. And it's like, I, uh, the only way to have this conviction 
the conviction that I have around meditation practice. You could read all the studies in the world, and now there are there's a, a vast and growing body of scientific literature corroborating the benefits of mindfulness practice, meditation, and so forth. But that doesn't really mean anything until you've done it and until you've tasted it and until you've realized, oh, I am different now because of this. This has changed me in ways that are making me a happier person and a better person. And that's why I have this conviction. And when you first develop that conviction, an early problem for most people is they start to evangelize in a way that's annoying because they're so filled with this conviction and this joy that that come from realizing it's all true. You know, it's all true. It, it happens just the way that they said it would. And you want to go tell everyone and then you become annoying because people don't like being pestered and told that they should meditate, right? So almost every new meditator goes through a phase once they realize how incredible it is where they go bothering people and evangelizing. And then we have to sort of move through that phase and get to a place where we realize the best way to evangelize meditation is to live in an admirable way and let people see that and wonder what brought that about for you. And then let them ask what you have going on. John, if somebody tries meditating and they're not necessarily quote unquote good at it, or maybe mm. they have a definition or a judgment around this and they see the benefits and then they go into the self-deprecating cycle of, oh, I can't get that place because I'm not good enough. How do you coach someone like that into sort of leaning into a practice? And what would that look like? Like if you were to sit, let's say I was that person. How would you yeah. sort of guide me through this? I mean, I guess what I would try and I would try and figure out why you think you're a bad meditator, what that actually means for you, because that's kind of a nebulous statement, right? So what does it mean to be a bad meditator? Now, nine times out of 10, when I ask someone, well, what do you mean you're a bad meditator? They say something like, well, I can't clear my mind. Or they'll say something like, my mind keeps wandering. I can't stay with my breath or whatever it is I'm trying to stay with. I keep wandering off. And so it's actually usually pretty easy to help someone see that they're not a bad meditator because they just didn't get the right instruction. What they need to know is simply that your attention is supposed to wander during meditation. You can't clear your mind. That's impossible, right? It might happen way, way, way down the line as sort of a side effect, but you can't just like will your mind to clear and your attention wandering all over the place is exactly what your meditation practice is supposed to look like. And so this is something that I put a ton of emphasis on, uh, especially when I'm working with lawyers, because they tend to be type A, goal-oriented and self-critical. So I make very clear, your attention is going to wander during meditation. That is part of the process. That's just what the mind does. And it's not any sort of a mistake. Your job is just to try your best to notice when that's happened and then to gently escort your attention back. But it doesn't matter how many times you end up doing that. Okay, So you might have a session where your attention is totally calm and stable. You might have an, a session where your attention is all over the place, totally chaotic. Those two sessions, equally good, equally valuable, even if it doesn't feel like it to you in that moment. And so people sometimes just need a little clarity around what meditation is supposed to look like. They've gotten the wrong idea. It's about clearing your mind. It's about having your mind be still. How are both of those two sessions that seem to be inherently different still valuable? Like what's the value? Is there a different value in each of those or are they both inherently taking you towards the same place? The value is that in both sessions, you are training your mind. Meditation is not necessarily about how you feel 
while you're on the proverbial meditation cushion. Meditation is a practice of transforming your mind through training, right? And so the session where your attention is wandering, 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 as long as you're bringing it back, bringing it back, bringing it back, then you're doing the training. You're exercising the meditative muscle, right? You're doing your reps as it were. So, you know, the the Tibetan word for meditation is gom, G-O-M. And what that literally means is habituation or habit change, because meditation is really just a practice of cultivating new mental habits. And if you have the crazy session and you're bringing your attention back, you're cultivating the habit. If you are having the calm session and you're developing that deeper calm and stillness, then you're cultivating that habit. In both of those situations, you're sort of doing the work. Now, it's gentle work. It's not hard work or strenuous work. It's gentle work, but it's work, right? And in both of those sessions, you're doing it. And so you are engaging in this practice of habituation, gong, meditation, and the results will flow from both of those, right? So one of those, it's not that one of those you get results and the other one you don't, or one of them's bad and the other one's not. You are going to see benefits from both of those. It just might not be immediately apparent. If I may give one more stolen analogy, this comes from the the British born teacher in the, the Thai forest Buddhist tradition, Ajahn Brahm. B-R-A-H-M. He's worth looking up. Funny guy. Ajahn Brahm talked about how you have a bad meditation on Monday. You have a bad meditation on Tuesday. You have a bad meditation on Wednesday. And then you have a good meditation. And you're like, oh, that one was good. These other ones were bad. But it's like, imagine if you went to work on Monday, you work hard, no one pays you. You're like, what the hell? You go to work on Tuesday, you work hard, no one pays you. What? You go to work on Wednesday and Thursday, no one pays you. You go to work on Friday, someone hands you a paycheck. And then you say, oh, I should only go to work on Friday from now on. That's the day when I get paid, right? That's a total misunderstanding. Those other days were you earning that paycheck, right? So those days where you have the chaotic meditation, the the unstable meditation, where you're being continuously distracted, you're earning your paycheck, right? Then when you have that good, that's quote unquote good, let's not call it that, you have that stable, calm meditation, you earned that with all those other ones. That's your paycheck. I think coming back to the idea of impermanence in some ways, like the attachment to having a perfect outcome, the attachment to doing something perfect, the attachment to controlling every single variable sitting in a super quiet room with no one around me, expecting that to lead to a perfect result is actually what, in my mind, you just described, like, that's what an active meditation practice helps you break. It helps you break the attachment to a certain set of outcomes. Like if I did this, I'm guaranteed that. Or if I show up like this, this is supposed to happen. It's, It's training yourself to dance with that delicate sort of flow of of life in its most basic and simple form. Yeah. And meditation will force you to learn the steps of that dance because I promise that if you meditate regularly, which I encourage everyone watching this to do, it's life-changing. But if you meditate regularly, you will have sessions where your mind is all over the place. You will have sessions where negative emotions come up, anger, fear, frustration, bad old memories, right? Uh, Maybe even old traumas. And this stuff comes up And oftentimes they'll come up the very session after you had what you thought of as an amazing session. So you better learn and meditation will force you to learn over time to just let go of those expectations, to let go of the need for perfection and to realize that you're kind of not really driving here. 
you know, so you might as well just sort of lean back and enjoy the ride. Beautiful brother. Dude, you're such a legend. I know you've been, you've been teaching for about five years, but I know you're starting to just share more, be more of service, man. Like how can, if anybody listening to this wants to come and just say, Hey, thanks John for pushing me to meditate. You know, how would they come about and just get involved with you if they wanted to have you come out and teach one of their law practices? I mean, in any way, shape or form, how can, how can the world reach out? Yeah, sure. So I'd say thank you for asking. So I would say that um, in a professional capacity, if you're actually, you know, a lawyer or you work at a law firm or any sort of legal employer and you want to work with me in that capacity, cool. Hit me up at mindfulnessforlawyers.com. Simple as that. You can contact me there. And then in addition to that, I am just starting to teach on Instagram a little bit. We talked about that a little bit beforehand. I've been sort of social media shy, but given that I can't leave here, anymore, you know, and I'm, and I'm used to sort of teaching in front of rooms of people live. I'm trying to figure out new ways to teach. And so I'm like really excited about the idea of sharing some of what I know, hopefully bringing a unique perspective, a grounded and pragmatic perspective toward contemplative practice, meditative practice on Instagram. So that's where I'm going to, that's where I'm going to be doing it. So you can find me there at, at John crop. That's J O N K R O P P as in Peter at John Krupp. I'll be talking about the basics of meditation in a way that I think will dispel some misconceptions and misunderstandings. I'm going to be talking about the wild far out shit, the more esoteric shit that you don't often hear about that you can't necessarily find on the meditation apps that I've sort of encountered through my studies with some of these great masters. And I'm going to also talk about anxiety. You know, I'm prone to anxiety and I've done a lot of work around that. So I want to talk about skillful ways to deal with that. And other than that, just other stuff that's sort of on my mind around meditation, well-being, anxiety, and sort of living skillfully in the world. Dude, I love it. Well, we'll have to riff on Instagram at some point. We'll I'm here for it, man. Let's go live and have one of these conversations live because this Let's is such it. a beautiful glimpse into your mind, your heart, but also just it's such a chaotic and crazy time right now with so many things changing and so many uncertainties about the future. And I think if anything, I, one thing I took away from this episode was just the reminder that it's okay to be learning how to grow up. It's okay to relearn how to grow. It's okay to be growing up forever. Like it's, we're all doing it. We never stop doing, doing it. it. We never stop doing it. So that's absolutely right. John, I got one last question for you, brother. In the midst of, everything you're doing, everywhere you're going and everywhere you've been, how do you stay grounded? I meditate. Uh, wait, hold on. No, for real. Sorry. I'm sorry to be repeating myself, but what did you, I mean, what did you expect, dude? How about this? I meditate every morning. I write in my gratitude journal every night. I love it. Those are my sort of anchor points to keep me grounded. Waking up and growing up. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Dude, you're a legend. I am so grateful. We got to riff brother. Um, Absolutely. But uh, everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj. This is your new friend, John. And from us, Stay Grounded. We'll chat soon. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, 
resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast, read in our thoughtful posts, or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.